This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number 8, recorded on December 11th, 2018. to the podcast that takes you beyond the classroom and into the trenches of science. I'm Dr. Abi Abdallah and I'm here with Dr. Fawner. Uh, Fawner, how are you today? Well, pretty well. December 11th and that means, what is it? Study uh, day and the oh, end of the Sunday. semester. Absolutely, yeah. So the only thing I have to worry about now is, what, making a final for tomorrow, 8 a.m., lucky me, and then a final for Friday. You and had that one is of those it. 8 a.m. Yeah, mine is Saturday, 8.30, I think. Or something. See, I had, I've always had Saturday 8 a.m. finals. I think every semester I've been here, and this is the first semester I'm off from it, and Lucky I couldn't you. be happier. Lucky you. <laughs> and we are here today with Dr. Matthew Morgan from the uh, philosophy department. Uh, Matt, Morgan, uh, Dr. Morgan, what, what would yeah. you like? Matt is fine, but thanks for having me here, BioBusters. I'm Happy to join you too, and I've been envious of all the programming you've been doing. I think it's brilliant and, and really a public service to the greater good. Well, hey, we thank you for the kind words. Well, thank you very much. Can, we, can we quote you on that and put that in a press release or something? Right. That's great. Absolutely. I'll put it in my tenure portfolio. There you go. It's even more important. And uh, we are here today uh, to talk about uh, gene therapy and uh, CRISPR technology and editing babies. But, you know, before we jump into that, um, today is December 11th, and it is, uh, uh, you know, I, all, I always screw up his last name. Is it Coach? Co? I think it's Coach. Coach? coach? I want to say Coach, okay. if I'm not mistaken, but I could be I want to say Coach, too, but... <laughs> well, we'll go with that. I think with three out of three, we got to go with Coach. It is Robert Coach's birthday. You know, with it, our listeners, somebody will email a correction saying, oh, by the way, whoever well, that's fine. You know, it, that's I'd, fine. I'd love to be corrected. Yeah. Uh, December 11th, 1843, Robert Coach was born. And, uh, you know, we've uh, recently started doing this where we talk about the day we record, we talk about some scientist that's either born that day or dead that day or something like that. And uh, so Robert Koch, famously known for uh, Koch's postulates in microbiology, and uh, he was a German physician, and uh, he's considered to be the father of bacteriology, and uh, he's discovered uh, the uh, bacillus for tuberculosis and Mm -hmm. for cholera as well. He eventually went on to win a Nobel Prize for his investigations and discoveries in relation to tuberculosis, but... Uh, his most famous contribution to science other than that is what we teach in microbiology as Coach's postulates, which are that for an organism to be considered to cause a disease, it has to be purely isolated, uh, injected into an animal mm-hmm. at the time, obviously, uh, probably mice, rabbits. I don't know what he... Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what his animal uh, model was. With. Um, it should cause disease in an animal. It should be able to be isolated from that animal, 
injected into another animal and cause the same disease. Mm. And these are what we know today as coaches postulates, mm-hmm. effectively, for identifying an organism as a causative agent of a disease. I guess after looking through his litany of experiments and pretty much everything that he studied, I'm shocked that he had his hand in and almost a, a lot, lot of, of different, different stuff, things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything from bubonic plague, sleeping sickness, uh, cattle Malaria diseases, well, yeah. trypanosome disease. I mean, he really... He didn't stop with just one, which he would have been fine with. Oh, tuberculosis, that would be my major achievement. He wanted to go all out, ambitious to the end. He did. Yeah, he did. He did a lot of stuff. And um, uh, sleeping sickness is interesting. We talk about that in parasitology, and that is the trypanosome. But um, we'll skip that talk today. We are here to talk about gene therapy, but um, I think one of the things that we should do before talking about gene therapy is maybe talk about... uh, what is recombinant DNA, mm-hmm. right? So recombinant DNA is when you take the DNA of one organism and chop it up or introduce cuts in that in there and then introduce DNA from a different organism and glue these two together, which the term for that is ligation in, in bio. So exactly how the name sounds, you're recombining the right. DNA from either two of the same species or they can be different species, correct? Right. So there let's say no you take, uh, yeah, there's no requirement. Let's say you take uh, DNA from a virus and then put that with uh, DNA from a bacteria, mm-hmm. you have a recombinant uh, DNA. There. Just recombined. Recombin- yep. oh, absolutely. And now, is this the same as RNA, or is RNA different? RNA a... is a different molecule than DNA. It's sort of uh, DNA's cousin. Okay. And it's structurally similar, but with some important differences right. that, of course, give it a specific different function. Yeah. DNA is normally found double-stranded. You mm-hmm. see that double helix ladder right. shape. Right. RNA is a single strand. It sometimes loops around on itself, binds with itself, but it's... A single strand, mm-hmm. if you follow it from like, you know, point start A to end. point B, yeah, right. start to end. And uh, uh, they're made of uh, just one difference in base and the sugar has an extra oxygen. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so for the most part, the building parts are very, very similar, minus a few right. kind of important differences with certain atoms. Now, it's uh, believed that, you know, RNA came before DNA. That's sort of the most prevalent hypothesis right now. Oh, okay. And then the other half of the ladder found its mate. and With the DNA, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Much. And then, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, there's a double helix there. And um, so with the recombinant uh, stuff, that sort of uh, boomed around sort of 1950s, 60s. There was a lot of interest with DNA. Uh, Watson and Crick had just come up with their DNA model in the late 40s or mid 40s, something around there. Maybe maybe early 50s. but and, I would and, say and, early in, 50s, in these yeah. these decades. Mm-hmm. And um, the, so a lot of interest with, with DNA biology sort of uh, moved dramatically into the DNA realm, into the molecular biology realm, and uh, it boomed really quickly. And the first sort of recombinant organisms created in the lab, mm-hmm. uh, nature does it on its own all the time with bacteria. Bacteria swap genes all the time. So mm-hmm. uh, nature does recombinant DNA on its own all the time, right? But doing it, uh, us as scientists in the lab, was uh, early 70s. So 1972-73 is when the first publications came out for recombinant DNA. I guess that's shocking. That's something that um, I hadn't appreciated, right? Not only does it do it on its own, but 
this topic has been around for probably far longer than a lot of people give it think, credit for yeah. or think about yeah, absolutely. because of all the hubbub and controversy around designer babies, recombination, and gene editing and therapy. This is something that has its grounds back in the early 70s. So what is that? Yeah, almost 50 about, years. Now. Yeah, we're getting on to half a century of yeah. this concept being studied and analyzed in scientific research. Yeah. About the same age as I am. <laughs> so and and you know so the first papers came out that creating recombinant DNA in the seventies and pretty much everybody freaked out. And uh, the freak out was, you know, when we think about it today, it's over something that we take so uh, trivially, right? But uh, the original uh, re experiments came out of uh, Paul Berg's lab, and Paul Berg eventually went on to win a Nobel Prize. Uh, he was a very famous scientist, uh, still is, I think he's still alive, and um, was one of the first scientists to effectively produce a molecule with DNA from two different species. Now, the nice thing about those experiments is that DNA is such a universal molecule that you can actually do that, right? You can take a DNA from a bacteria, combine it with a DNA from a human, and they yeah. will fuse together so beautifully because they're the same molecule. Well, highly conserved molecule. Yeah, yes. Absolutely. And so what he had done is he took uh, DNA from uh, a bacteriophage, which is a and virus so, that infects bacteria. Mm -hmm. And he took that and combined it with DNA from a mammalian virus, so an, uh, an SV40 uh, virus. And that's simian vacuolating? Si simian, right? so a, 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 a monkey virus, effectively, yeah, or infects monkeys. Yeah. Okay. And so he combined these two DNAs and then put them into E. coli, which is a bacteria. Now, that was his original intent. He sort of put, a, put the brakes on putting them into the bacteria because everybody freaked out. They said, oh, what are you doing? This is taking a step too far. Mm -hmm. Let's take a step back. Let's, you know, think about this. Some of the concern was at the time that SV40, which also infects mice, was known to cause cancer in mice. And E. coli and, is, of course, e. coli a is common a human, bacteria found in the human gut. Absolutely. All of our chart. intestines have E. coli. Mm -hmm. So the fear was, oh, what if the E. coli that you're creating now that has this virus DNA gets out into the environment, gets into people, is it going to cause cancer in people? Or this sounds like a perfect plot summary for like a night of the living dead walking dead type scenario I'm yeah sure you. sure i mean i don't watch this show but if you say so i, I mean, mean i know have, the premise i don't think they've revealed what caused that outbreak in walking dead i think i just i need to get in contact with these writers and directors and it's recombinant dna it's a new plot line hey maybe maybe you should send in an episode i mean you know, i would love to send a script maybe i can actually get some money i won't mention youtube but i'll take all the profits <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, good thing you, you haven't signed any intellectual property paperwork, have you? I don't think so, not to my knowledge. <laughs> it's all to your college property. There buddy. you go, buddy. Anything you produce here, uh, well, until uh, we somebody, own. <laughs> until somebody tells me something, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, you know, a bunch of scientists effectively uh, said, okay, let's let's put a halt on this till we figure things out. They sent a letter to the president of the National Academy of Sciences effectively asking for an ad hoc committee to to be put together to study the safety. The Committee on Recombinant DNA Molecules was born and it recommended a halt until an international conference was held. And uh, these scientists then, uh, Paul Berg and a bunch of other 
scientists put together uh, a uh, conference in uh, 1975, now famously known as the Asilomar Conference on Recombinant DNA. And Asilomar is uh, uh, a conference sort of slash hotel out in California. Yeah, I looked it up. It was a YMCA funded thing, I think. Oh, is that right? Oh, okay. YMCA, part of the YMCA organization. Sure. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of neat. Um, so, yeah. And then uh, from that conference, uh, what came out was voluntary guidelines by scientists to ensure safety of recombinant DNA technology. Uh, they recommended different levels of containment that are uh, effectively still used to this day. I think they were sort of the uh, ancestor uh, guidelines to our BSL safety levels. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, minimal, low, and moderate to, and then high risk. Uh, and that's according to containment levels. Kind of whether that newly generated organism with the recombinant DNA could change pathogenicity, how pathogenic it's going to be. Right. And then, of course, and I think this is what we're going to get into and probably talk about from the ethical and controversial side of things, what ecological risk right. does it pose being released out into the environment? Yeah, this is the sort of thing that when I was looking it up that reminded me of uh, outbreak on the television or you know, in the movies where folks are donning their biohazard suits and going through yep. airlocks to make sure that nothing gets out, you know, where right. you'd imagine smallpox is kept yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. at the maximum level there. Yeah. So, and that's something that we'll touch on too briefly is how exactly are these recombinants and how is gene therapy going to be controlled? You know, what are the agencies that regulate it? Who's in charge of determining um, how these studies are conducted? Uh, absolutely. And so what came out, and so the conference was a huge success. It was very highly well received. One of the things that uh, the organizers, Paul Berg and uh, the other couple scientists were very keen on was to include as much of the general public as possible. Uh, lawyers, uh, uh, scientists, uh, uh, journalists, uh, and uh, what have you. A few philosophers. Absolutely, mm, and go. a few philosophers as well. <laughs> and, you know, I was reading some history on a Silomar conference, and uh, one of the things that I uh, read that was interesting was that this was a few years after Watergate, and uh, the public was effectively very distrustful of the government at the time because of how they tried to cover up what happened with Watergate or what Nixon was trying to cover up what happened with Watergate. Mm -hmm. And uh, pretty much one of the things that they wanted to do was not to have a conference that looked very secretive or cagey and oh. then was effectively similar to what, uh, you know, happened with the cover-up, right? So a little bit of a political flavor here. Absolutely, wow. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. I mean, you've got to imagine what the 70s were like, right? I mean, we had just gone through the 60s and the birth of the environmental movement, yeah. Silent Spring. Silent Spring had sort of come and done its thing. Mm -hmm. People remembered that the government had said, oh, DDT, it's just fine. Spray yeah. it on your children. Yeah. No, you're right. And I would imagine that at that point in time, and we might be going through a period similar today, science is possibly being regarded as, you know, how it was in the movies, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the mad scientists with a white coat and 
frizzled hair and <laughs> looks like he just got shocked by electricity the goggles i think of doc brown from the back to the future movies yeah, and, yeah, 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 you know absolutely. he's crazy and doing all he's always on edge yeah who knows what kind of experiments in the lab and again i think that's where some of the controversy comes from not that there aren't ethical issues with this type of treatment therapy but i think some of this and luckily the purpose of this podcast is Here's what the science is behind it. Here's how it's regulated. Hopefully, will be controlled sure. as much as you can control something. But that's just—it's fascinating that you have you see these ebbs and flows in different mm -hmm. periods of time. Trust me, I think the scientists are trusted more in the public eye than the philosophers are. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, not not you know, not in today's climate, right? <laughs> Um, but, you know, for those of you listening, if the sound changes a little bit, our sound engineer just uh, pressed a bunch of buttons. So uh, if the sound changes, <laughs> it's not our fault. <laughs> uh, he came in, looked at our board and, you know, a couple buttons were changed. But you know, well, now it, we're just coming through like we're using sound modulators or something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, if we sound different now, it, we'll blame it on the engineer. So we've kind of gone over here the basics of gene therapy and kind of recombining DNA, right? Well, and that that led to effectively, eventually, to uh, gene therapy. Mm -hmm. So effectively, and what gene therapy for uh, humans or any other organisms, it's effectively fixing genetic problems at the source. Mm -hmm. So modifying an organism's or a patient's uh, genome. And genome is the totality of an organism's genetic material. And uh, pretty much, uh, let's say you have uh, an inability to uh, produce uh, clotting factors, mm -hmm. so factor X deficiency. Yeah. Right? And uh, you don't have the gene that produces those clotting factors. One way would be to uh, go in and... Uh, introduce uh, that particular gene into your cells, and then you'll have the ability to produce that clotting factor protein. Which sounds basic in its premise, right? But right. is actually a bit complicated, and we'll oh, talk yeah, about. Oh yeah, I mean, it is. Uh... <laughs> we'll talk about the method, specific method it by which. It sounds easy. Step one, step two, oh, right? Yeah. But <laughs> it took years. And it one of the years. big things and big requirements, right, is that you need a way of transporting or introducing that brand new gene or that specific gene that's going to replace or take the place of something that's not functioning or mutated right. in your genome, correct? How do you get the gene mm -hmm. into someone's cell? And is it sufficient to just introduce the gene into the cell? Or do you need to find a way to integrate it into the person's genome so it's in their own genes or chromosomes? And do you introduce the DNA or do you introduce the RNA? So uh, going back to your mm -hmm. earlier question, Matt, uh, the way proteins are produced in the body. You have your genome, you have your DNA, your body reads the gene that let's say gene A produces protein A. It doesn't go from gene A to protein A right away. There's an intermediary molecule that is the RNA. Mm. So your uh, cellular machinery takes the genome, reads it, produces a transcript called the RNA called transcript, the RNA transcript mm -hmm. that is then translated into the protein by the ribosome. And for those of you Bio 145 students who still have finals coming up, <laughs> we would call that specific phenomenon in the field of science gene expression or the central dogma. 
which is not very dogmatic. No, well, I think we've touched on that. We, we don't have we're not 20 going back minutes. To that to, one. Yeah, let's not go backwards. We can go two steps forward. How about that? So, so one of the things that for gene therapy is do you introduce the DNA or do you introduce the RNA right away? Mm-hmm. You know, in, in, in previous, before gene therapy, for someone who would suffer something like a factor X deficiency, can't clot, the therapy used to be that you would go in and uh, uh, scientists or medical professionals would collect blood from thousands of donors, mm-hmm. get that clotting factor from them, purify it, then put it back into the organism that suffered from a clotting, uh, an inability to clot, a hemophiliac effectively. Yeah. That's the uh, factor X one, the hemophiliacs, right? So it used to take a lot of resources, a lot of effort. So we're talking about cost, and are Absolutely. we talking about the time period in which it was going to last as well? That's not going to be a universal fix or a long-term fix, No, yeah, fix, you'd have correct? to get that regular Repeated injection. injection. Absolutely. Yes. And one of the earlier problems that uh, we had with something like this was that uh, before HIV became a problem, the blood supply wasn't really tested. So there are a lot of people who relied on blood transfusions or injections of uh, these sort of uh, or these sorts of injections who ended up and they were in the in the 80s and 90s. They were in the thousands. This was not a trivial number Mm -hmm. who ended up with HIV because of blood transfusions. Right. Well, we're seeing this with a number of, you know, different molecules and drugs and whatnot. You mentioned the clotting factor, correct? But this has also been effectively studied in the use of insulin, right? Uh, Of course, everybody knows that one of the main treatments for diabetes are insulin injections, injections, of course. That's been the gold standard for however many years, decades now. And how they used to, when they were first studying the kind of gene recombination possibility and potential, was that they would... They inserted the insulin gene into bacteria, and that was what company's first drug? That was Genentech. Genentech. And that was the first drug ever uh, to use recombinant uh, gene technology. So Genentech is actually out in San Francisco in California, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it is now owned by Roche, isn't it? I think so, yes. Yeah, yeah. They sold it to Roche for... Two, three billion dollars, something crazy like that, or maybe maybe twenty. But it was it was a it was in the billions, right? But these guys started Paul Berg, plus another scientist. They were approached by an investor who was a lawyer at some point or something like that, and uh, they had just discovered this sort of recombinant technology that you can put, you can take, for example, the gene for insulin, mm-hmm. figure it out, insert it into a bacteria. And then have the bacteria produce all the insulin you need. Yeah. Now before that, they were getting insulin from bovine sources. Or oh, absolutely, sheep. exactly. Yeah. They yes. used Things to get like cows that. and yeah. sheep and dogs yeah. even, and grind up their pigs, uh, grind up all the pancreases because that's where you produce insulin in the pancreas. Uh-huh. Um, and imagine how much time, effort, how much of the material oh, you needed to grind up of to pounds, isolate and purify of the insulin. Of pancreas, yeah. I mean, just the timing alone and the cost. And that's one of the, what I think, the treatment of insulin and the potential of gene therapy and editing for, you know, diabetic use would, I mean, this would revolutionize the treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Now, is this the same company that we can blame for raising the prices on insulin currently? No, that's a a different company. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) 
you know, part, uh, part of the problem with those raising the prices, insulin or the EpiPen disaster that was a few years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, these are investment bankers that, uh, you know, fork out the money, uh, go buy a company that produces a very specific drug for a, a very niche market, right, that no one else produces. And then they want to recoup their investment right away. So they jack up the price 1,000 times and, uh, you know, get their money. Right. It's not illegal. No, it's capitalism. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's not illegal. Uh, for something that's a life-saving drug, one can make a very sol- solid argument that it's uh, immoral, but uh, definitely not illegal within our laws. <laughs> yeah, right? So, And, you know, these people do that all the time. Um the the EpiPen guy, what was it? The Martin Scarelli guy? He's in jail. Well, for, Scarec- Scarec- for something Scarelli else. or whatever. Yeah, Scarelli. Yeah. That wasn't the EpiPen fellow. That yeah. was that was the guy who did the um, Toxodrug. therapy oh, for, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. for your parasites. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. You're right. And, uh, you know, he brought attention to himself by doing this. And then the and he was uh, caught for fraud, feds looked into his uh, dealings. And it turns out he had defrauded the government of some other thing in the past. And they got him on that. Our uh, sound engineer has been by again, so <laughs> if now the voice we, changes again. <laughs> now we sound maybe like Darth Vader perhaps this time. <laughs> Boy, we're going off on a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> Not one of your better impressions, but I'll take it. Yeah, no, I mean, the, so Corelli was uh, a, a small niche market, but mm-hmm. Mylan, the pharmaceutical industry that's doing the EpiPen, uh, they're really uh, a major pharma company that... Yeah you know, produces a good number of things. Uh, and so the, the pricing set, the pricing model set by Socrelli, um seems to be followed and catching on yeah. and getting worse. I mean, first it was the, that one small drug for Girardia. Now, then it was the EpiPen. Now it's insulin. Yeah. And, you know, this does bleed into the questions of uh, economic justice, uh-huh. especially with uh, the gene editing that we're contemplating now, you know, where is uh, the reproductive technology, the genetics uh, of editing designer babies perhaps going to take us? Is this going to be a technology that only the rich can afford? Right. And that's something, and I'm glad you brought that up, Matt, but one of the, especially now with these different companies potentially kind of holding insulin hostage, correct? Um, what are the different ways in which, what's the one advantage of potentially using something like gene therapy for the treatment of, uh, you know, too little insulin as in type 1 diabetes? And the advantage is for any any type 1 diabetic would tell you that injecting insulin multiple times a day, that's very, very difficult to maintain. And it can be very costly, especially with these rising costs and right. all these nasty pharmaceutical companies. And of course, if you don't maintain your glucose, in the case of type 1 diabetes, it could lead to you know chronic state of hyperglycemia, elevated blood sugar, kidney failure, blindness. We've all heard the you know horror stories of people who kind of don't manage their diabetes correctly. And I guess that's one of the reasons why I really, as I read this and as I've known about gene therapy for quite a while now, what are the advantages of using gene therapy compared to standard treatment? Because there are treatments that are available, but gene therapy takes it to the next step and makes it almost like the body itself is doing the work. You don't need the constant injections, any possible operations. It can be quite a fort now in theory. 
it can well, I mean, be... if, ins if insurance companies it, pick up the cost, yeah, right? Exactly. Now the price is... So, I mean, the last one, I mean, I don't know if there's been any since, but last year, almost a year ago now, I think it's September 2017 or something like that, the FDA approved a, uh, a gene therapy for leukemia, mm -hmm. pre, uh, uh, pretty much childhood leukemia as well, right? so leukemia in children called Kimria. Mm -hmm. And it delivers an engineered uh, immune system protein effectively in uh, gene therapy wrapping. It's a one-time treatment. And uh, if it works, that's great. You know, your kid can go on to live a full, healthy life. Uh, but the company itself charges uh, $475,000. Is that Perfect. all? And that's just for the treatment, right? That is not the including the cost of the hospital. So uh, add on top of that all yeah. the medical cost of the doctors and, you know, uh, nurses and the hospital, whatever, the, all the stuff you pay when you go into a hospital. Plus all how much you've paid since to get to that point, discovering that your kid has leukemia, right? You're looking at a case of a million dollars. A million dollar baby. Yeah. Absolutely. And how exactly do you, number one, where do you come some, up with that kind some of money? Some individuals do not have, not can't some, even most, make that most choice. Most, most, sorry, thank you. Yeah. But most individuals don't even, can't even entertain that choice. And imagine, again, the ethical dilemma there and imagining being a parent, knowing that maybe there is a treatment there for leukemia and you right. just cannot afford it. And, uh, you know, you all, I mean, most parents will uh, mortgage their house again, sell their house, do whatever to get that treatment for their kid. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what it feels to have a kid, mm -hmm. uh, thankfully, but <laughs> <laughs> it's not too bad. there, Delbert. <laughs> yeah. You've got one. He's a nice kid. Yeah. I'm looking forward to one eventually, but after talking with you a little while, I'm starting to become cheap. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's a joke. Um, but again, this is just one case study. And like you said, the treatment for leukemia. And I guess one thing we should preface before we start moving on into evolutionary concerns, ecological concerns, and the ethics and morality behind gene editing is the fact that currently, and correct me if I'm wrong, these are only available with clinical trials, correct? These are still... Uh, uh, no, some of them are FDA approved. So some of them, yeah, like yeah, you had yeah. mentioned, They've that been, are very they, high cost yeah, are yeah. FDA approved. The FDA okay. has approved at least a few uh, gene therapies. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if now's the time to make the distinction between germline and somatic cell therapies, but it be. sounds like this leukemia therapy is a somatic yeah. um, therapy that simply stays with the person who's being cured. Exactly, like the body cell. So if you think about the word somatic, and again, by 145, listen up, open okay. your ears. Um, or med term, there you go. But somatic no, cells I, I, are your... Just not, not, not to interrupt quickly, because we are at half an hour. So give us a... Just a quick definition of what is somatic, what is germline, and then we'll pick it up so right after you're the telling break. me no more verbal diarrhea. Got it. Somatic <laughs> no, <not> cells <laughs> are body cells minus your gametes, your sex cells. Germline therapy is aimed at basically editing and changing and inserting, you know, genes into the germ cells, right? The so sperms egg and eggs. Sperm. Exactly. The and functional I, important there is that, you know, any therapy that is happening on germline is transferable to future generations. Exactly. Right. Somatic stays Somatics. within that individual yeah. itself. Right. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pick it up at this controversy right after our uh, short break here. So uh, for those of you listening on the radio, we'll have a, a small music break. 
And for those of you listening on the podcast, we will power through. And we are back. Thank you uh, for continuing to listen to our podcast. So we left it at um, somatic versus germline modification, germline, and mm-hmm. the uh, morality of, or you know, what is the ethics of uh, changing germline with the potential of sending that into future generations. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the reason we got on this topic is because recently there has been a. Uh, announcement coming out of uh, China that uh, two or one, I guess, two babies, one twin, uh, were uh, born uh, to a uh, mother uh, where the uh, babies effectively, their embryos were edited Mm -hmm. when they were embryos Mm -hmm. uh, through a technology called CRISPR-Cas. And what is, if you can kind of bullet point it, what exactly is CRISPR-Cas and what is it used for? What's its relation to gene therapy and gene editing? So CRISPR is effectively a uh, technology. Well, I mean, now it's a technology, but CRISPR itself is a very ancient cell defense system that prokaryotic cells use. And prokaryotic cells are bacteria and archaea. Archaea are ancient bacteria. So our cells, for example, are eukaryotic cells. So they have a true nucleus, right? So inside of our cell, there's a nucleus surrounded by a membrane, right? Uh, prokaryotic organisms are uh, non-true nucleus cells. So they have genetic material. It's usually sort of floating around in a nucleoid region, but it's not inside a membrane-bound nucleus. Mm-hmm. And these uh, prokaryotic cells, so bacteria and archaea, have the cellular defense system that they're constantly... Uh, the bacteria in particular are bombarded by these uh, so-called bacteriophages. And these bacteriophages are viruses that infect bacteria. Mm-hmm. And uh, viruses will bind to a cell, whether it's bacteria or not, let's say a human cell or bacteria cell, inject the DNA or genomic material, sometimes RNA, but let's say inject their DNA and then instruct the cell to make more copies of the viruses. So they take over the replication machinery of the cell. They're high, I mean, these hijacking. viruses are basically hijacking Absolutely. it, controlling it to make more copies. And then they're telling that particular bacteria, hey, make more virus, right? So what the bacteria or prokaryotic cells have evolved over, you know, millions of years, billions of years possibly, uh, effectively a mechanism to remember those invaders. So they take a little piece or a chunk of DNA from an invading virus, They hold on to it. They put it in their own genome. They hold on to it. And they say, I'm going to remember this in the future. If I'm infected again by the same virus, I'm going to recognize that because I've kept a little piece of it, right? And I'm going to send in my uh, DNA chopping mechanism, which is this CRISPR protein effectively, Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, the proteins resulting from this CRISPR system, where it then can recognize, so... Uh, through what's called a nuclease, and nuclease is an enzyme that cuts DNA or RNA material. Any nucleic acid. Any nucleic Mm -hmm. acid. And will effectively now, any incoming virus that these bacteria can recognize, they'll chop it up. So basically the main function of the CRISPR-Cas system is to cut up foreign DNA. Scissors, right? Scissors, they cut up DNA. Exactly. Pretty much. For destruction and removal. Absolutely. Again, it kind of sounds a little bit 
not dangerous, but you hear destruction and removal of genes and the alarm bells start going off. <laughs> but, you know, that's part of the research and part of the continued advancement in this field is how do you make this CRISPR-Cas system, this scissor cutting mechanism, a little bit more specific so that you're only going in and targeting the bad, faulty, or bad gene, Without cutting, any removing. And that's the key Without thing that's focused on here. You need to not have any mistakes or you can end up cutting some other genes. Right. So a few years ago, uh, a couple of scientists, uh, most famously now, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, they uh, uh, figured out an easier way or they figured out how to sort of take this CRISPR mechanism and uh, make it sort of uh, more usable for gene editing. So, which is now what we know as CRISPR-Cas or CRISPR-Cas9. Cas is the endonuclease that chops up. So you take effectively this uh, 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 CRISPR protein, couple it with this endonuclease, and then you can put a particular RNA template in there that is sort of bound to it of the gene you want to cut. Mm -hmm. And then you insert that into, let's say, a human cell. Mm -hmm. And the RNA would find its complementary DNA sequence. Mm -hmm. And then the endonuclease would cut that DNA out. And it's basically a targeting system. It's targeting, absolutely. Yeah. You're, you're, you're zooming in, targeting uh, uh, pretty much what gene you want to cut out. And voila, gene removed. And again, this is nice because one of the, you know, common misconceptions that I think can be somewhat valid is that this is highly dangerous because you don't know exactly which part of the genome you're going to be targeting. But this is nice because it's lending a degree of specificity. Right. Not that there still aren't dangers, of oh, course, of course. No, but this allows it to be very specific for the exact part of the DNA molecule you want to remove. Now, the biggest uh, problem with this was, or it probably still is, that once you cut that gene out, the genome wants to fix itself and mm -hmm. repair itself, right? Mm -hmm. The genome does not like nicks in the DNA. It's going to repair that break. So when it, let's say you have gene B sandwiched in between genes A and C. Mm -hmm. You cut out gene B, genes A and C are going to come back together. Yeah unless you replace the gene B with something else. So you yes. can take out a defective gene B, put in a good gene B, right? Mm -hmm. You can provide that. You'd have to de deliver that new gene along with the CRISPR-Cas, right? I would say sim simultaneously, uh, correct? Uh, absolutely, yeah. you have to. But let's say you don't. Let's say you're just cutting out a gene and not replacing it with something else. Gene A and gene C are going to meet and then try to merge again. When they're doing that, through that sort of process of ligation, it's not a simple gluing process. Uh, because you have to add some DNA nucleotides mm -hmm. there for these to come together, which is where you have a chance for mutations. These The DNA itself is going to try to repair itself. You can't really super control what sort of bases are going to mm -hmm. be put there, right? Yeah. So part of the problem has been that there's a potential for these mutations to come about. And or when you send in that CRISPR and you want to cut out gene B out, you may maybe cut out a little bit of A, a little bit of C. It has not been perfected yet, mm -hmm. right? But it has been used uh, successfully to uh, work out uh, uh, either adding or removing genes from uh, different crops, uh, different human cell lines. Uh, in vivo models of mice, uh, monkeys, uh, various other animals. 
and it has been done in human embryos as well significantly. So this is the same technology that they use Monsanto, for example, to make BT corn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. Same concept. Yeah, I don't same know if they idea, actually yeah. use CRISPR, but same idea where they introduce into the genome something that, for example, uh, uh, resists uh, pesticides or whatever. Right? Roundup or whatever. Uh, yeah. uh, pretty much, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like a gene to resist Roundup, right? Um, now, like I said, it's been used with human embryos a lot. The difference has been up until a few weeks ago that these embryos were never implanted. Mm -hmm. So this is done in fertilized embryos left over from fertility treatments and they're allowed to multiply to a certain cell division stage. Mm -hmm. But after that, they're either put on ice or destroyed. Yeah. And this is happening in the United States, China, UK. Uh, pre pretty much any, any one of yeah. these big countries mm -hmm. uh, in, in the United States, obviously, uh, there was a federal ban on using federal money for that. Yeah, I know uh, Obama uh, had uh, eased up on some of that, but most of the money that is used for a lot of embryological studies in the United States for human embryos is private money. Now, is that? I'm but sorry, but there's still a restriction on whether they can be implanted or not. The oh, U.S. Cool. has a moratorium on that implantation. Now, is that um, kind of restriction by the government for federal fund usage? Is that for research on germline therapy, correct? What about for somatic cell gene therapy? I think any, is it, is it any embryo or just gene on, or just germ? I want to say it might be specific to germline. I'm not sure. It might I mean, be at somatic. The at, the embryonic at the embryonic stage, level, I would say it's also banned. Yeah, at the embryonic yeah. stage, there's it's no real be distinction between germ and somatic. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. It's all just You're one right. embryo. That, mm -hmm. That's what I was thinking, that if any modification is happening at the embryonic level, there's so many stem cells that are being mm -hmm, affected. Exactly. That this is going to inevitably be a germline therapy rather than a somatic cell one. Although, it's you know, both. the idea yeah. of, you know, maybe having in utero somatic cell therapies uh, does have its appeal. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Oh, absolutely. But uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but if you modify anything at the uh, early embryonic level, you're modifying pretty much both future somatic and germ cells in mm -hmm. that potential future uh, uh, human, right? Sure. So but, it, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it seems like we're kind of segueing quite nicely into more of the controversy and more of the kind of dangers of gene therapy, right? So what can happen when gene therapy goes wrong? Let's say it's not as specifically directed as we would like it to be. It's not as specifically targeted to a region of the genome. What are some of the health risks and methodological risks associated with gene therapy? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that strikes me is, you know, although this probably wasn't discussed in the Asilomar conference, but when you apply a somatic cell therapy to an adult, uh, you have sort of an encapsulation of whatever therapies are present, whatever sort of genetic modifications are being done. It's not something that will be passed on mm -hmm. to future generations. There's no escaping the body in which it's been put. Mm -hmm. uh, however, when you have uh, germline therapies or implanting uh, an edited embryo, which inevitably is a germline uh, approach, then the cat's out of the bag. Then you have a human being who's been delivered. Uh, the Chinese twins are alive. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, their names are Lulu and Nana. Mm. Uh, and one of the questions is that, that strikes me is, okay, let's imagine that 
uh, this experimental technology has some deficits? Will Lulu and Nana be prevented from reproducing when they become adults because of this therapy? Is there going to be any restrictions on their reproductive freedoms? This is not something China is entirely uh, unfamiliar with, mm -hmm. re restricting right. uh, reproductive yeah, freedoms. But uh, certainly if uh, this happened in the United States, we would say, well, it's their freedom and their right to continue to reproduce, in which case uh, we're going to have generation upon generation, presuming they choose to reproduce, mm -hmm. of this um, therapy. Yeah, pretty much an edited, uh, an edited uh, genome, genome, right? That's passed on and continually passed on. No, I, I mean, the the problem, you know, uh, I I'm personally for gene therapy. You know, we I think we just need to control it, right? We just need to regulate what gets edited out or what we think is, you know, we 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 may need to provide. I think we need a moratorium right now on implantation till scientists, philosophers, doctors, lawyers, whatever, everybody gets together and says, what, you know, this is, uh, the, these are the list of 10 or 20 laws. genetic diseases that we think are terrible for humankind. And maybe we can edit that gene right? But, but I guess you... with this guy, he deleted a gene called, uh, 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 that expresses a protein called CCR4 which HIV uses to enter cells, which is also not uh, CCR5, my bad. And uh, CCR5 is not the only receptor HIV uses to enter cells, right? Mm -hmm. So, it, and, you know, his idea was like, oh, they're protected from HIV, right? And that's not going to be the case. But they're not also... Necessarily. Yeah, not necessarily. But they're also yeah. protected from HIV if they avoid HIV, right? That was the justification he used to, to perform this. Uh, his he succeeding. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a terrible one, Yeah. Right? I, I think it's a justification that doesn't hold any water because HIV, even even as a disease, even if you get it, it's a manageable disease, right? Yes. It's no longer a death sentence. Mm -hmm. So uh, in my mind, there was no justification, um, a strong moral justification for this particular uh, deletion. Well, if you think about it, the way that the study was conducted, I mean, it was kind of it, off the in books, secret. Yeah, very secretive. Uh, I mean, this is a huge controversy and... No oversight. No uh, oversight yeah. whatsoever. No approval from any IRB committees, anything like that. The IBC, which we'll define later. No data published. We haven't <coughs> seen any. It's not been peer-reviewed. Exactly. And for me, this was a really big blight on the advancement of gene therapy. I feel like... Oh, with, it can set us back. I sure. think yeah, it, it, I think it may I, have already set I us back. I think it will, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think I think um, I was just rereading a book that's been out uh, for quite some time now. Francis Fukuyama's Our Post-Human Future. Mm. And in it, one of the quotes that struck me is, science by itself cannot establish the ends towards which it is put. Uh, the ends toward which science is put, the regulation of science itself by scientists, uh, has had a pretty good track record from Asilomar on, uh, but that you can imagine social pressures being brought to bear that would uh, try and challenge these these uh, self policing, uh, the self policing of scientists by scientists. Oh, absolutely. Maybe I've seen too many movies with Frankenstein, but <laughs> maybe I just know a, a good t too many scientists. You're asking me to trust the scientists to manage their own affairs, and uh, you know, I mean, this is a an issue that goes well beyond the confines of science. It's not just research. Mm -hmm. This is issues concerning human dignity. This is an issue concerning uh, the future of the human 
race, really, uh, as a species? What sort of um, decisions are we going to make to uh, evolve, really, when the power of evolution is now in our hands? And that's something that, from the ethical side of things, who will decide? You know, your proposed committee of scientists, philosophers, medical doctors, you know, psychologists, what have you. Who decides what would be the good versus the bad use of this therapy? Who's going to decide, okay, this gene is bad because it does X, Y, Z, but these are the good genes. And some genes and gene variants or alleles are not that cut and dry to decide which are good versus which are bad. Because some genes might be really kind of bad for, let's say, the development of Alzheimer's. And I I believe that's one of the examples. Uh, One gene is okay for getting rid of because it might eventually cause Alzheimer's, but then it also can potentially, in a certain frequency of the population, uh, increase vitamin D. Well, that's the other thing about the CCR5 is uh, there are some studies that show that, uh, yeah, okay, if you don't have it, you may have the ability of uh, less infections with HIV, right? You Mm -hmm. won't get HIV even or AIDS, even if you get HIV virus, but then it turns out in some cases, and you know, the the jury is still out on that, turns out in some cases, uh, not having it makes you more susceptible to the flu. Exactly. Which these twins are more likely to get. Right. And if they're uh, more likely to die from the flu. Exactly. Especially in early years. So you must always consider that, and I really like this quote from um, a writer, I believe he's a scientist, uh, by the name of Jin uh, Kozubek, and I'm likely mispronouncing that. (laughs) Is that the science writer that keeps writing stuff in like uh, Slate and things like that? I think so, and I think he had an article in uh, Time Magazine published not too long ago. And the one quote that he put out there was, losing the bad can mean losing the good as well. Absolutely. Some of these genes are involved with multiple different mechanisms, multiple different pathways. For example, I know someone who suffers from a deficiency of platelets. Mm -hmm. Um, You were talking about clotting factors Mm -hmm. and platelets are the things that, you know, bind together to create clots in our blood. And that helps us, you know, seal up the wounds that we incur naturally. Uh, But I would imagine that there's also some benefit to having low platelets as well. Uh, You know, in terms of having blood clots, uh, thrombocytic, uh, what is it? The... uh, Blood stroke, clots stroke, in your strokes, strokes yeah, yeah, or, sure, or okay, clots in yeah. your legs or your veins or mm-hmm. congestive heart failure, perhaps. Uh, and so, you know, on my end of things, I could use a bit of lower platelet numbers myself. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, we want to preserve in many ways that that degree of variation that can uh, allow us to overcome possible future threats. Um, for example, I guess the um, the sickle cell is a pretty good case Point, yeah, right? and, you with, know, I think with uh, malaria. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and you know, that's a case of co-evolution of the parasite with the uh, with the people in that area. Mm-hmm. But I think that there are uh, so-called, you know, monogenic diseases out there where we know for sure that there's a direct relationship between uh, having the one gene or having the one defective gene and a particular phenotype or disease. Mm-hmm. And that that particular disease is not, say, multifactorial or more complicated or more than one gene involved, right? So there are, I think, you know, we can come up uh, as a society of, you know, 
sane and sage engineers and doctors and philosophers and scientists. We hope. We hope. Uh, with a list of, you know, uh, some genetic disorders that have a non-complicated direct relationship, not a multifactorial, like, oh, if you knock out this gene, maybe something else gets affected, yes. right? Just a direct relationship. I, and, you know, those are out there. And uh, there might, you know, I think there's, there's justification for, in my opinion, uh, for, uh, you know, knocking these out or, or replacing them with, with uh, you know, wild-type variants or non-mutated variants, right? But we do definitely need to have some sort of regulation. Oversight. Oversight. Yes. Uh, and we have to do our due diligence. Whether in... the government interferes, I don't know how to do that. You <laughs> yeah. know, like... Uh, yeah, I, I think maybe one way we can divide the question here is, you know, what should we do? What can we do? Those are two different questions. Uh, ideally, one would like to imagine a regulated world where we identify, uh, say, for example, cystic fibrosis or Huntington's or Tay-Sachs or whatever, and that these may have that, that monofactor that we could just go in, somatic cell replacement therapy or whatever, using CRISPR uh, and, and fix the problem. Um, but whether or not, in matter of fact, uh, we're actually going to be able to over, uh, oversee the progress of science, specifically with regard to gene, gene editing um, and overall with regard to just the increase of scientific knowledge, um, I, I have serious doubts whether we can restrict the development of knowledge. Certainly, um, the, purse, the power of the purse strings may help tremendously. Mm -hmm. So if governments decide that, hey, we don't like this, so we're not going to fund this, that would be one way to restrict progress. But uh, you got to get every government on board. But you would have to have, it would have to be a UNESCO, yeah. you'd have to get the, uh, the UN involved. And, and even then, even is then, just yeah. very far-fetched. It, it is yeah. difficult. I, I, I mean, think all international agreements suffer from this same yes. fault, and that is, you know, okay. In the best case scenario, we would have people all agree, but we can't even agree on climate change. Much exactly. <laughs> well, we can. <laughs> yeah, we, we certainly can. That's for sure. I, I think you can't stop the science, but you can possibly put restrictions on the implementation, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we really need to hit hard on that and try as, as hard as we can as a society to try and regulate it in some way because y you can't stop the science, right? The science will get there whether we like it or not. Well, look at what just happened right. in China, exactly. correct? The science right. will get there. It's exactly. just we need to figure out how to get there safely, how to ensure that it's not being abused, how to ensure we don't go down the line of, we're not fixing diseases now, but, you know, I'd like a child with brown eyes and green eyes and this and that. Like, this can go, you know, and, then, you know, that's Consumerism, part of Consumerism, absolutely. Kind yeah, of yeah, just, yeah. you know, the uh, the rich and famous saying, yeah, then, okay. Yeah, you have socioeconomic status exactly. issues and absolutely. So yeah. buying the, who knows, in our lifetime, it could be far-fetched, but... It could be like one of those DNA kits that you can buy on Amazon for like 50 or so bucks. <laughs> Maybe these millionaires go on whatever sure, site yeah, and buy a CRISPR kit and with the aid of a scientist. Well, Chris, I mean, it's, I hate to break it to you, but this is already happening with mm -hmm. pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Mm -hmm. 
and fertility treatments. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's funny that the Asilomar conference happened around the same time as the first in vitro fertilization right. uh, treatment, the first test tube baby. And yeah. if you're as old as me or older, you might remember the brouhaha over how unnatural uh, test tube babies were. We don't even hear that phrase anymore yes, yes. because it's so common mm -hmm. for those who can afford it. Yes, right. I know people who can afford it, and I know many more who cannot. Yes, it's uh, tens of thousands of dollars. It, yeah, is. it is. I mean, easily tens of thousands. I mean, probably $50,000 for a routine fertility treatment. Right. And during this fertility treatment, they take out eggs, they uh, they divide the cells, they, um, they fertilize the cells, uh, they, they divide to a certain number of divisions um, with uh, gametes or uh, zygotes, and then they and then they implant them. But you know, once they've divided to a certain stage, you can take out one of those cells. You can analyze its DNA. You can tell whether or not it carries perhaps Huntington's chorea yep. or something already, and then decide whether or not to implant this one or that. And so it is not that far of a stretch to imagine if it's not already happening, and I would almost be shocked if it isn't, mm -hmm. that, you know, the rich and the famous are undergoing these procedures and then determining, I want a boy or I want a girl. I mean, I know that that's happening already with just oh, in China and India, uh, yeah. selective I mean, abortions. Have, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. They have a problem with uh, imbalance of males to females. There's a lot of males that uh, can't find wives because over the last uh, 30, 40, 50 years. Now we've stigmatized abortion, yeah, but yeah, yeah. with pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, yeah, sure. uh, then you just have a bunch of fertilized embryos lying around and nobody's yeah. going to wag the finger at you saying, oh, you're aborting all of those uh, embryos because they've yet to be implanted. Mm -hmm. um, and so in many ways, in many ways, we're there. Um, no, we are. Yeah. I mean, we give agency to people over that sort of stuff, right? Which is, which is why I think, you know, gene therapy... It, if regulated and done well for a very strict list of diseases, right? Can I, be we very have beneficial. to be, we have to, can be very beneficial for a very strict, I mean, there are some debilitating diseases out there, right? That over a li person's lifetime, it's misery and cost and this and that, right? So mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's room for, you know, making an argument for that, but there's vast potential. Absolutely. It just has to be controlled. It cannot, it cannot happen like it did now you know where and i think that's we wake up and it's it's too late the babies are born we yeah. haven't seen the science we don't even know if they're really deleted now uh, certain uh, st uh, evidence is coming out that they're not re not all of their cells are deleted of the gene some still have it so they're mm -hmm. mosaic babies uh, yeah they have it here, but not there, so it didn't really work. It's yeah, I think there's some controversy over whether Nana and Lulu actually have that mosaic, right. or yeah, 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 yeah. or so, whether they're that other. Well, and, and, and we haven't seen the data, the missing data, exactly. Yeah. I mean, with the incomplete data here, right. it's kind of all of these unknowns are very, very scary, and you know, this mystery is is frightening to a very large degree, and it comes down to. I like the idea of, you know, the regulation and the control. And of course, I'm for the increased use of this therapy for some of these really bad diseases. I think we almost have a right to continue to pursue and perfect this technology and this therapy for the ultimate advancement. You can't of, stop yeah. science. It's, it's yeah, a duty. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, uh, think about the spread of technology. How is that going? Have we restricted the spread of technology? Mm. North Korea. Yeah. India. Mm -hmm. Israel, uh, ringing any bells, uh, <laughs> you know, um, 
we we once the cat is out of the bag, the cat's out of the bag. And GDM I think with bottle, CRISPR, yeah. the cat's out of the bag. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like it to be regulated. We should do everything. We have the duty uh, to regulate it. Even as scientists, I mean, th- this is this is not good for science to have it be sort of it's just a wild west type, you know, it's not good for well, us. Well, and you know there are some scientists out there, and I hate to say this to put a blight on kind of our professions, but there are some scientists who will probably be seeking federal funding and looking at this as the golden goose oh, so that they can get grants in, um, patent, different oh, techniques Oh, there, there are already a bunch of lawsuits uh, in United States courts on uh, uh, on uh, uh, CRISPR and, you know, who owns it and uh, companies want, want to monetize it now. And <laughs> That's uh, what it's about. There are so many conflicting. It's gone to courts of appeal. Are we going to have a patented therapy now? To, uh, to solve these these genetic diseases in the same way that we have patents on Roundup Ready soybeans. Yeah, that's I you could, know that's it, absolutely that's part of the problem. You know, uh, Genentech got away with uh, patenting uh, producing insulin, mm-hmm. and uh, they got away the with the patent laws. And I forget the details of how they did it, how they got away with it. But uh, let's think about that. They, they effectively were, they, own it. They they were able to patent a gene. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, no one owns that. We all own that. Right. Yeah. And we certainly uh, have a claim to ownership, given all the uh, intellectual development that the government is funded towards these projects, projects. And then, you know, you see, say, the University of Pennsylvania performing research that is intermixed or intermingled with uh, the various uh, capitalistic and, and private concerns who lay claim to, oh, if you develop any therapies for, for lung diseases, you've, you've sold us the rights. So we've given you, you know, $30 million uh, for your lab here. If you develop anything, we own that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but, but you're right. We all own it in addition to, hey, it's a gene. You don't own a gene, man, right? Yeah. But we all own it as being taxpayers mm-hmm. because the NIH has funded a lot of these things that went on to become private ventures. I mean, we own, we own plenty of genes. I mean, I don't own plenty of genes, <laughs> but I mean, Monsanto does. You know, I yeah. mean, so I mean, the precedent for owning genes is was there. Set. Yeah, it was set 50 years ago. Yeah, uh, what we might need in response to that is, well, do we own any human genes? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, Genentech does. Right. <laughs> yeah, Genentech does. No, we talked about that. It definitely yeah. does. Absolutely. Absolutely. Any, uh, we're at about an hour. So uh, I'm happy to keep going. But uh, any any final thoughts? Any, I guess uh, my. Uh, Dr. Morgan, any ethical uh, things still burning uh, <laughs> desire to sort of, you know, throw out there? Well, listen, I think, I think we need to bear in mind, you know, the utilitarian principle, which seems to have more traction in our country than uh, some Kantian modes of thought. Uh, And that is, you know, to strive for the greatest good for the greatest number. Uh, We need to ask ourselves, you know, when we're funding these types of research, when these types of research are going on at uh, universities like Rice or Stanford or Berkeley or the University of Pennsylvania, um, whether or not this is going to be a technology for the greater good or for the few who will employ these technologies and uh, buy and sell the rights to these technologies to, you know, maybe get a sixth vacation house. And that's something, you know, that is 
I like that six vacation house. Yeah, right. Yacht that can fit a yacht inside. <laughs> well, that's something that not only from the kind of SES and industrial consumer perspective, but this is something that you and I, Delbert, what was it, last week, discussed briefly during lunchtime. Um, are we going to be kind of instilling any unintended evolutionary consequences into the human race by effectively going in and starting to change genes and thus traits and yeah, how people I mean, we're, are we're going to start doing it on the genetic level we've been yeah. doing it for tens of thousands of years <laughs> on the phenotypic level right <laughs> you know uh we selection yeah absolutely artificial yeah. selection we've artificially selected dog breeds we've artificially selected plants we've artificially selected a lot of things right we have been uh, playing uh, with evolution. I mean, I don't. Sure, <laughs> you will. But I, no, we've been we've been playing Darwin for uh, for a very long period of time here, right? But uh, now we have the capability to do it at the genetic level. And yeah, what is that going to do to evolution? Right? And what I what I can answer adequately, and I don't think there is a hundred percent answer here. Who decides how a specific gene is going to function, going back to the good versus the bad gene? Is in a gene entirely 100% good, 100% bad? You talked about some monogenic causes for some disorders, right? But we know that A, evolution cannot create a perfect form, right? No, just edits what already exists. It's going to edit what, it, what already exists so that populations can adapt to certain local areas and niches and evolution kind of works in the margins, and it does so via different trade-offs. If you l lose a specific disadvantage, you hope to gain an advantage, but not always. So Absolutely. basically, you don't get an advantage without at least risking the possibility of something harmful happening to you in the future. It's never 100% perfect and clear-cut. Mm -hmm. So we go back to your quote from earlier, you know, losing the bad can mean you're losing good as well. And what you had said, being very careful and having a specific, precise list of what disorders we want to treat. Are there any possibilities of removing this gene that might, you know, uh, allow for efficient clotting or that might prevent Alzheimer's? Are we then taking something else away? And in the case of the Chinese babies, now they might be possibly immunodeficient and more likely to maybe get the flu and die in their first few years. We don't know. Yeah, it's. I mean, there's there's some there's some evidence out there that it, it that that might be the case with CCR five, right? But uh, you know, I, again, jury's still out on that. Are you familiar with uh, Stephen Jay Gould's theory of punctuated equilibrium in terms of evolution? That you know, generally the the just the evolution steps goes of, yeah. goes gradually until a crisis hits. Yeah, and then you see a, a, a spike, jump. Yeah. a spike. So I mean. When, you, when you're looking at human populations, it strikes me that, you know, maybe we would see that spike. Maybe under optimal conditions, under peaceable conditions, mm -hmm. uh, we can control this. We can say, all right, we're only going to treat these diseases. But let's imagine uh, the fit hits the shan and, you know, we're, we're, war, we're, breaks war breaks out, uh, you know, in one form or another. And crises strike. Necessity is the mother of, or uh, what is it? It is necessity the mother of all but, inventions. Yeah, necessity yeah, is the mother of all inventions. And so then we, we draft in the scientists to create, you know, super soldiers. And I uh -huh. mean, I am going science fiction a little bit here. Mm -hmm. But, 
you know, I mean, this is the, the speculative engine that we I need mean, to it's... employ to ask ourselves, okay, keeping the cat in the bag seems like we can do it in, in optimal conditions. We're not going to do that mm -hmm. in suboptimal conditions. Right. Under yeah, suboptimal optimal conditions, we're going to see, you know, uh, various countries go, we're going we're gonna to use everything and anything we possibly can to uh, overcome our adverse adversary. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I see no reason why gene editing wouldn't be part of the arsenal. Well, you said, you know, the idea of super soldiers, and then you said science fiction. Based on our discussion right now, oh, it's not science fiction. I would hazard to say this it's is science, science nonfiction fiction. now. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you this know. speculative, you know, when you think super soldier, because I'm a geek, I think about, you know, decades ago when way before my time and very popular character now, Captain America, uh -huh. coming up with the idea of the perfect soldier, the perfect man. Decades ago, back in the 1940s, 50s, whenever that character debuted, I'm sure that was ha-ha, you know, create a superhero, I, whatever. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind uh, getting a Wolverine skeleton. I think I'd enjoy that. <laughs> I mean, to each their own. I'd prefer to fly, but I don't like heights. Um, <laughs> but, but again, I mean, if you're think flying, about that. Is, that, is that. Is that heights? I mean, is the fear of heights you being high I don't on wanna, something solid? I'm already, you know get, I mean? I'm already getting nauseous. <laughs> all I would think about is flying, and all of a sudden the power goes out, and there we go. I drop back. Just, down to earth, yeah. But I mean, you prove the theory of gravity. Though. There you go. But think about it. You know, it's no longer science fiction from when we were kids or from when you know my dad was growing yeah, up. 50, or a kid. Years ago, cell <laughs> Chris, cell when you were a kid, is a little different from when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. I didn't right want to dude. come right out and say. It. <laughs> but hey, no, I, mean, I mean, think about it. 50, 60 years ago, uh, you know, cell phones were science fiction, right? No, you're right. Oh, it was on Star Trek. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what they used to communicate well, on Star Trek. The Apple Trek. watches now, you know, going like this, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. now Kayla's walking around like this in the stores. Dick Tracy. Butter. Yeah. Right. Dick. Tracy, it was the that, first person yeah. to do that. That was before my time, though, I have to say that. But, you know, you're right. Gover governments will try to do that because mm -hmm. there's evidence of that, right? There's superbug warfare, bio-warfare, yeah. right? Both the United States and the Soviet Union at the time, the United States, you know, they claimed they stopped it. So just the Soviets, I don't yeah, believe any of sure. <laughs> But, you know, uh, that, you know, they tried to create uh, superbugs that uh, they can weaponize and, you know, put in... Uh, 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 Weapon form or mm -hmm. missile form. And I mean, think about the simple calculus of eliminating your inventory of smallpox. Mm -hmm. Has it happened? Not, well, not in it the U.S. Not. No, not, not, in, the, not, not in Russia. And uh, I mean, it's such a clear-cut case of utilitarian, yeah. good for the greatest number, yeah. get rid of the smallpox. We can't even do that. Right? Yeah, you're right. right. And a few years ago, they found a couple vials at the NIH that were not supposed to be there anyway, in a freezer that has not been touched for whatever decades. So again, going back and forth with the oversight, the most strict regulations yeah. that you can yeah. possibly think of, and then you will inevitably have all it would take is a mistake, right? Now, you can say it about absolutely everything. On the other side of the coin, sure. you can sure, always sure. say the what ifs, nothing will be perfect in nature. Nothing is perfect, as we just talked about with evolution. So does that necessarily mean, and I guess what I'm getting at with our kind of sharing of thoughts here, I guess for maybe final opinions or wrap-up thoughts on the idea and implementation of gene editing and whether we would maybe want to see it in our lifetime. Uh, what what do we think? What, what are our kind of final well, opinions? Final thoughts, I think the science is there. Mm -hmm. We can't stop the science. I think that there is uh, a clear 
greater good benefit, it must absolutely must be regulated. I think we need to uh, uh, put a, something similar to an Asilomar conference together again and uh, try to get to a point of uh, because you're not going to be able to stop the editing of embryos and their implant Im implantation it will happen yes. right it's just a matter of time we just need to make sure that when we get there we get there for the right reasons using the right technologies after having done every single due diligence to make sure we don't have unintended consequences mm -hmm. Again, that's a utopic uh, view. <laughs> I admire your optimism, yeah. Delbert. I really do. Uh, I think you're discounting or, or perhaps just not simply really deeply aware of how imperative it is for a parent to give their child every conceivable advantage possible. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that is, that is a biologically Powerful engineered drive. drive, I believe. Uh, that, you know, we want to see the success of our offspring. It is really the continuance of our genes. I mean, that's a, bio, that's a biochemical <laughs> bond that is produced, you know, via different hormones. The bond sure, and yeah, that, sure, sure, sure. you know, uh, wanting to do absolutely everything possible from especially mother to offspring. So if I had it within my power as a rich parent to make my child taller and fairer and all the rest of it, not to sound too, uh, you know, it just, I mean, I think people will do that. Mm -hmm. I think people yeah. will do that. Yeah. Um, and they will get it uh, through hook or by crook. Yeah. Uh, they will do it in covert ways. Perhaps they're already doing it in covert ways, not to be too conspiracy minded. <laughs> But, well, uh, you never know. I mean, we didn't know if this guy doing what he was doing. No, and that, thank goodness he was uh, honest at least enough to say, guess what? But yeah. notice that he waited. I think he's trying he to say waited until they were born. Yeah. yeah Cuz now you can't do anything about no, you it. Can't yeah, take yeah, you can't take that back. You can't go, "Oh, <laughs> let's yeah. let's let's I mean, if if he had mentioned that he had done this while they were in utero, mm -hmm. I imagine without a doubt China would be in there saying these chi these children won't be born. Yeah. Possibly, yeah, yeah. I guess my conflict comes down to, and it's something we've been hinting at, and what you touched on, Matt, is you can't control human nature, and you can't control not only from the uh, parent-offspring relationship, but you will never be able to control a hundred percent who is going to use this technology and this therapy and this methodology for righteous reasons and for more nefarious reasons whether we're talking about industrial economical uh it's just it's very difficult to control every aspect of this but i guess my final thought would be and this is where i agree with you delbert that this is going to happen and continue to be advanced and happen whether we like it or not we're not going to be able to control put the genie back in the bottle hit the reset and go back you know, the past few decades and start with this at square one. This is here. This is here to stay. Our best bet right now is to control it, put in regulatory mechanisms in any way we possibly can from the commercial side, from the consumer side, um, from especially the patient side. We need to try to make sure this is a fair treatment for everybody. It's readily available and that, of course, it's safe. And a lot you know, of there's a reason it happened in China. Right. Mm. In the United States, we have a pretty, uh, so far, as far as we know, a pretty 
well-oiled, well-working regulatory machine that prohibits the implantation of edited embryos, mm-hmm. right? And yep. as far as we know, it has not happened at any American university. <laughs> but China does not have that. Yeah. Right? And, well, and, I mean, it's interesting to note that his contacts and his, his intellectual development happened primarily in the United States. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's in contact with this fellow from Rice, uh, Mr. or Dr. Deem, uh, who knew and approved of this research. Even though, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I knew that a bunch of scientists in the United States, after they heard the news, they said, oh, the name is familiar. And they went back and searched their emails. Mm-hmm. And it turns out they've they had a lot of email with communications with this guy asking, oh, how do you do this? Or how do you edit this? Or how do you like, you're asking some so technical definitely sharing tips and information, but yeah. not knowing what the final result was going to be, or yeah. at least that's what they yeah. claim. I mean, a couple of these scientists that I read about, uh, a fellow named DeWitt in Berkeley and Quake in Stanford, uh, knew of this and told him not to proceed. Uh, another fellow from Stanford, Proteus, uh, said uh, you shouldn't do this, but wasn't entirely uh, univocal in his uh, condemnation of it. Uh, and frankly, the the scientific response, while generally um, condemning his research, it hasn't been as univocal as I would wish it to be, and it certainly should be yeah, at this yeah. point. Uh, I think the I mean, a fair amount of scientists have said this was reckless. Uh, yeah. it, the media has been, I think, on the negative side, uh, but yeah. Okay, uh, I think we're at an hour and fifteen minutes, so I think we should wrap up. <laughs> do we have time to? No, let's do it. I mean, it'll be quick. Listener we, email uh, here. Yeah, let's you do mind? listener emails. Go ahead, read it. Yeah, okay, sure. So we had an email from an illustrious alumnus <laughs> here at Teal College, and it reads, "Docs!" Exclamation point. Um, hey, it's Steve Kozik. I graduated from Teal with a bachelor's in bio in December two thousand sixteen. And I'm currently in my second year for my doctorate of physical therapy at Gannon University. You may remember me by my sister, the TA legend known as Beverly Kozik. <laughs> and just a shout out to Steve because we know he'll be listening. I think everybody no, here Steve, yeah. who's uh, had we, Steve Kozik. Yeah, we Steve, Steve, we remember you for yourself and Bev for herself. Absolutely. So all don't worry. Kozik's. Just yeah. a quick shout out, Beverly. We remember all of the Kozik's <laughs> here. And yes, Beverly. Um, I just want to let you guys, this is from Steve now. I just wanted to let you guys know I really enjoyed the podcast. The first five episodes were really great and have been a nice bio-refresher course for me on my rides between my girlfriend's house and Erie. You both really inspired me and made science classes that could have been boring into fun experiences. Basically, keep up the good work, keep inspiring students, but at the same time, Steve also had some suggestions for future episodes that I think we might want to look into because they're very good yeah, suggestions. Yeah, right? and, uh, yeah, we thank you for those suggestions, Steve. We won't read them mm-hmm. uh, on air and uh, we thank you for those suggestions and we will uh we like a few of them actually or all of them and we'll we'll, uh, put them on the list of things and uh for our listener uh tj fisher by the way just so you know as uh steve ended his uh email ps wtf with viruses being alive and uh i know fisher uh is is an adamant of viruses being alive uh, uh, Fisher, uh, Steve doesn't think so. Well, maybe we can bring them both on over the Christmas break to have a little one-on-one tete-a-tete on whether viruses are alive or not. Do they reproduce? <laughs> well, that's our show for today. Dr. Morgan, uh, thanks a lot for yeah, thank uh, you, coming. Matt. This was great. 
It was a blast. Thank you. We uh, tend to uh, focus on the science and pretty much agree with each other all the time. So this, this was good for us. Do <laughs> <laughs> I so disagreement? <laughs> good, good. So uh, that's our show for today. You can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. And you can find us on iTunes. Just search for The Biobusters. You can also use any podcast catcher to download our episodes. You can also listen to our episodes on thebiobusters.podbean.com. I'm Delbert Abi Abdallah, and you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Delbert, and uh, you can find uh, Christopher Fauner at Fauner916. The Twitter will officially be active over oh, Christmas oh, break. Please, every single episode. <laughs> he has a, he has a gonna... very inactive Twitter. He doesn't even tweet the links to our podcast. <laughs> I don't gonna... even know how to tweet. <laughs> I'm gonna so do I will not ask you what dump. your Twitter is. I won't give that up. <laughs> I'm going to do an information dump of all eight episodes, maybe on oh, Christmas Jesus. Eve. That'll be your present for Christmas this year, I promise. All right. All right. Well, thank you all for listening, and thanks to uh, Baha Namani for the music.